Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Now you see why that's on my mind this morning. Before we begin our remarks, I'd like to ask Brother Cody, would you offer a word of prayer? Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. I'd like us to open our Bibles this morning to the 62nd chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 62. I'd like to ask the question and find a biblical answer to it this morning. When does God rejoice over his people? When does God rejoice over his people? We'd like to read the first five verses of Isaiah 62 to begin with. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. Thy land is Beulah, which means married, and Hephzibah, my delight or my rejoicing, is in thee. For as a young man marrieth the virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee, and as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Now this morning as we think about Isaiah, that great prophet whose name means Yahweh is salvation, he's a man that began his ministry at the close of the reign of King Uzziah in 739 B.C., and he was actually killed later by King Manasseh uh, in his wicked reign. Uh, and it's said that Isaiah was uh, placed in the hollow of a tree log and sawn in half. So when we read uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and he mentions those who were sawn asunder, Isaiah would be one of those. A man greatly blessed of God, a man that was able to see beyond his own generation and even his own nation to see a period of time when there would be a new name given to the followers of God. Uh, a, a time when Gentiles would be included in the kingdom that God established in the earth. A time when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would be actually begun in the ministry of Christ himself. A very important and significant time of history but we need to remember that Isaiah prophesied wrote these words seven long centuries before Christ was ever to come so the people of God lived in a state of hope that one day this prophecy would be fulfilled now initially we know that this could actually refer to Judah's return from Babylonian captivity and of, and of course that's part of the picture here but I dare say this morning that there's more to it than just the return from Babylonian captivity. There would be a time when God would rejoice not only over Israel, but also over the church, also over the kingdom that involved Jews and Gentiles. I want to step back in time 
to the time of Moses very quickly with you this morning. I'd like you to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 28, uh, we read where God is pronouncing blessings upon His people for obedience and curses upon His people for disobedience. But He says something that I want to underscore with you this morning in an introductory way as we search the biblical answer to this question. When does God rejoice over His people? In verse 63 of Deuteronomy 28, Moses wrote these words, And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to nothing, to naught. And ye shall be plucked off of the land whither thou goest to possess it. Here's a, here's a very a sobering uh, announcement by God. He says, I'm going to rejoice over you in two ways. I'm going to rejoice over you in the abundant blessings I pour upon you, but I'm also going to rejoice over you in the matters of discipline when God will bring under judgment those that have disobeyed His word. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 30, in verse 9. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 9. He says, And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, and in the fruit of thy body, that's your children, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers. When? If. Verse 10. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. These are just uh, tremendous verses to my mind, and, and it signifies how God's relationship would be defined with his people. It is through obedience to the word of God that we are actually brought into uh, the joy of the Lord. We read about that, don't we, a lot. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, uh, the, the joy of the Lord is thy strength. It's something that strengthens us. When we're walking with the Lord, we're strong. When we feel or sense God's presence with us, we're, we're strong. And, and I'm interested to know what period of time or what manner in which that strength is derived from God rejoicing over His people. We could go to the language of Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 41, and we could find there where even in the, even in the prophecies of Jeremiah, that, that wonderful weeping prophet, when he was weeping over the, 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 the departure of the nation in which he lived from the true and the living God, uh, we find that uh, Jeremiah always gives a word of hope or consolation to those who repent and return to the Lord. He says this in verse 41 of Jeremiah chapter 32. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Here is a continuation of that promise that was given by Moses. Now go back to our text in Isaiah 62. I read those verses so that you would have a foundation for the relationship that God has with the children of Israel. In other words, it's God's intent. It's God's initial design to bring nothing but blessing upon His people. Not only spiritually, but also physically. That God would provide for all of their needs. That they would not have to look to the idol gods of the world. That they, they wouldn't have to look to the culture to sustain them. But they would actually be able to be walking with and uh, hearing uh, God's word unto them. So now we come to Isaiah 62 and it says for Zion's sake. Here's that wonderful metaphor that describes the spiritual blessings that God's people have had through the centuries. God has chosen to reveal himself to his people. 
And Zion is that holy mount in Jerusalem uh, where the altar was, where the sacrifices were brought, where the Ark of the Covenant was stayed, where the tabernacle would come and later the temple would be built and erected to the glory of the name of Jehovah. So here's the man of God and he says, For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace for Jerusalem's sake. I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. God intended his people, his city, to be a lighthouse as a beacon of hope upon the troubled waters of the sea of life. That's God's intention. That's why it wasn't unusual for Jesus to say to his followers, You are the light. Of the world. The light of Christ is the light of rightness or righteousness. The, the light of Christ is, is uh, the enablement that God gives his people to do the next right thing. Somebody says, Well, I don't know what I should be doing tomorrow. Well, just tomorrow, do the next right thing. And God will bless it, God will honor it. It will be a lamp, it will be a light that burns in a, a dark an unsettling world. But notice, he says, in this economy that God is working out, this economy of blessing, this economy of rejoicing over, in this economy, the Gentiles are going to be brought into that. Now, that's, that should be a very significant promise to you and I, because you and I are Gentiles. So we are a part of this prophecy those who, uh, of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are a part of this prophecy. The Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all the kings thy glory. The rulers, the nations around us shall see thy glory and thou shall be called by a new name. A new name reflects a different relationship, a, a new status, if you will. In other words, there's going to be a time when... Uh, God is not just going to be revealed as the father of the Jews, but also of the elect among the Gentiles. And I submit to you that in the Old Testament, we could say that that, that new name would be um, uh, perhaps uh, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. A declaration of God's presence in the midst of this people. Never so much more. Then we will see Jesus Christ come. Remember what Jesus would be called? One of the names? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. God is there. One of the reasons we love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is because we sense the presence of God here. Now we, we certainly sense the presence of God here. Um, in our daily walk, but not, not as uh, to the same degree as we do when we enter into his house singing his praises, praying to him, hearing his word being declared. So we love the gates of Zion more than any other. A wonderful tribute to that new relationship that Christ ushered in. Thou shalt also be called a crown of glory, a diadem. That word is diadem. Uh, a royal diadem in the hand of God. And, and no more will you be called forsaken. And the word forsaken there in the Hebrew tongue is azuba. Azuba, which means abandoned. Abandoned. Forsaken. Uh, when Jesus Christ was on the cross and he used that term, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me this is the word he was using azuba abandoned he was abandoned upon the cross so you and i would never be he says there's a time coming when you'll no longer be abandoned or forsaken or desolate and the word desolate is uh, shamama which means unfruitful without fruit but you're going to be called Hephzibah, which means my delight or my rejoicing is in her. And Beulah land, 
a land of marriage where we, uh, in covenant uh, relationship to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, are now able to receive uh, freedom and liberty from shame and guilt and reproach and sin. We rejoice this morning when we feel the presence, power, and pleasure of God in our lives. But the question still remains, when does God rejoice over us? In Psalm chapter 16, verse, 12, uh, verse 11 and 12, he, he says, In thy presence are joys forevermore. We're rejoicing in the presence of God in the land of Beulah, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God delights in His people as those who are clothed in His righteousness, washed in His blood, adorned with the graces of His Holy Spirit, bearing His name to a watching world. As a young man marries a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. He's talking about covenant sons and daughters. Covenant people are married. And the, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. So if we can, for a few moments, look at the characteristics of those over whom God actually rejoices. We'll understand how that plays out in our own life. The first point I want to make with you is that I believe he's describing the context of faith. Those who possess faith. Not just any kind of confidence in any kind of being, but a saving faith, a faith that... Uh, is the result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with which we are able to focus upon the object of our salvation, the object of our faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of faith that Paul describes as, as a, a lifestyle wherein we stand in faith. We live by faith. Uh, we are uh, able to use faith that God has given us to see Christ as our only hope and our only salvation. I want very quickly to go to a few points in the New Testament in Luke chapter 7. We recognize this story, don't we? This dear woman who was a sinner who came and washed the feet of Jesus with her own tears and dried his feet with her hair. This woman that was disdained by those who sat at the table and yet Jesus saw her as no one else did. And Jesus said in verse 47 of Luke chapter 7, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many, now, this doesn't mean anything to any one of you that does not feel as though your sins are many. If you don't feel like you're a sinner this morning, this passage is not for you. But those of us who do know our many sins can relate in some degree to this woman. And Jesus says of this woman, though her sins be many, uh, they are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. Now those that were sitting at the table were shocked by Jesus saying this uh, statement about this woman. Thy sins are forgiven. In verse 49, And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, not, not out loud, but in their own thought process, they said, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? Verse 50, and he said to this woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Thy faith 
that saved thee. He would say in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 22, to the woman with the issue of blood, thy faith hath made thee whole. Same thing. Matthew chapter 9, verse 29, the two blind men that were healed, Jesus responded the same way. He said, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Luke chapter 17, verse 19, the Samaritan leper that was cleansed, Jesus said, Thy faith hath healed thee. Luke chapter 18, verse 42, blind Bartimaeus was healed of his blindness, and Jesus attributed that healing to his faith. The reason I'm bringing this out is the fact that when you think about God rejoicing over His people, God never rejoices more over His people than when His people are exercising faith the most. The more we exercise faith, the more pleasure and delight we bring to the heart of God. You see, it is true. Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So this great gift of faith was given not only for our benefit, but to make the heart of God rejoice. So there's our first point. When we talk about a people bringing delight to the heart of God, we're talking about a people who are living by faith. The second point I want to make with you about these people that rejoice the heart of God is the forsaking of sin. Not just faith, but the forsaking of sin that we refer to in the New Testament as repentance or a repentant heart. That, 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 that means much more than just being sorry for sin. That's a part of it, that, uh, certainly. But that's not what true repentance is about. True repentance is not being sorry that I got caught or being sorry that I'm suffering the consequence. But true repentance that God gives to His people is when they turn away from and forsake that sin in their life. That's when God rejoices. Turn back your Bible while we're in Isaiah. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 55 very quickly and catch what he says here. In Isaiah chapter 55, beginning with verse 6, listen to what he gives counsel to us about. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked, what? Forsake. Let the wicked forsake his sin or his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will what? Swat you and stomp you like a bug on the rug. No, I'm so glad for the mercy of God toward poor sinners. I'm so thankful for that. He says, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, brothers and sisters, there's a tremendous wideness to the mercy of God when his people respond to him the way we ought to. In the humble humility of our heart, agreeing with God, confessing with God. Confess means to speak the same thing. When God says you're a sinner and you come to God and say, yes, sir, I know I'm a sinner. And because I know I'm a sinner, I'm not here asking for justice. I'm not, I'm not like that, that fella that got caught uh, uh, stealing chickens. And, uh, you know, the jailer come to him and says, don't worry. Don't worry a minute. Oh, old judge so-and-so is the most just judge in the county. And he just wailed. He says, that's what I'm afraid of. You see, he recognized he was guilty. And if justice was to be meted out uh, uh, to him, he, he would get the severest penalty possible. But nah, listen, when we come to our Father in a true heart of penitence and a true heart of confession and a true heart of dependency upon his 
love and mercy. He always gives us abundantly. That means more than you ask for. He's abundant in His mercy toward His people. So it's not just a, a, a people of faith, but it is a people of forsaking sin that brings joy and pleasure to the heart of God. The third point I want to make with you is that this people that rejoice the heart of God are fruit-bearing people. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bring forth much fruit. Now, we're not bringing forth fruit in order to become God's people. Certainly not. You know, an, an apple doesn't appear upon the tree in order to make the tree an apple tree. An apple uh, appears on the tree because the tree is an apple tree. The fruit is just making manifest what the nature of the tree actually is. So it is with God's people. When we're bearing the fruit of the Spirit that are described in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, when we are uh, being fruitful in every good work according to the language of James and, and the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, when we are bearing that kind of spiritual fruit, we're rejoicing the heart of God. That's, that's the glory of it this morning. That's the joy of it this morning. We're able to rejoice in who God is because we know that He is rejoicing in us. He's rejoicing in those who are bringing forth the evidence of the indwelling of God in our hearts. The Apostle Peter said it best, and he says, Beside all of these things, add unto your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, if these things be in you and abound, they will make you that ye shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of God. See, brothers and sisters, God didn't call us to be barren in His vineyard. He didn't call us to be shade trees. Now, shade trees are a fine thing for a little while, but a shade tree doesn't give you any nourishment. What, what, what He's talking about is a a vineyard in which he has planted his people so that they would bring forth the evidence of his indwelling to the benefit not only of God, but also of one another. So Jesus is, is looking for fruit. He says, by their fruit, you shall know them. By their fruit, you will be giving evidence of what God has done in your lives. Turn very quickly back to the language of Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. I want you to see what Solomon said about this fruitfulness. In um, Proverbs chapter 11, he says this in verse 30. He says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. It's evidence of life. And he that winneth souls is wise behold the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth so much more the wicked and the sinner you know there's judgment coming toward all men one day the apostle Paul affirmed that in Hebrews 9 didn't he he, he said it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment there's a judgment coming upon the wicked our judgment, or the judgment of the elect, was meted out to Christ on the cross. But let us never forget that it, is by, that it is by virtue of His sacrifice, His payment for our sins, that we have the ability or capacity to rejoice the heart of God. It's because of what Christ did. So the Bible teaches us plainly that it is faith, it is the forsaking of sin, it is fruitfulness that truth truly does bring joy to the heart of God. Fourth point, the people that we're describing here this morning are those that fear God. Remember what Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 that, that, that wisdom is 
uh, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What are we praying for in our political leaders? My number one prayer is that whoever they are, that they would fear God. What we're seeing today happening in our capital and in our judicial system are the results of people that no longer fear God. They don't fear God. We need men and women that fear God. Uh, turn your Bible with me quickly to Psalm chapter 147, verse 11. Psalm chapter 147, verse 11. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. The Lord takes pleasure. The Lord rejoices over the people that fear his name, that fear him. And, and when I'm talking about fear, children, I'm not talking about being afraid of God. I'm not talking about uh, trembling because God is near. I'm not, I'm not talking about that attitude that Adam and Eve had after they sinned, hiding from God in the Garden of Eden. Not that kind of fear. Fear is a reverential awe, a reverential regard, a reverential respect for who God is and what He's done in your life. That rejoices the heart of God, brothers and sisters. It rejoices, the, uh, brings pleasure to the heart of God. I believe what C.H. Spurgeon said in his commentary on Romans chapter 3, when it says, uh, they, and there was no fear of God before their eyes, he wrote a lengthy paragraph on, on that particular verse, and he said this, and I agree with him. He says, I believe that all sin is actually rooted in this one verse. All sin is the result of people that fear their sin more than they fear God. That's a tremendous thought. Do we fear sin or fear the world or fear popularity or fear a success more than they fear God? What rejoices the heart of God is when God's people exercise a godly, respectful fear and regard for him and his house and his people. The fifth point I want to make is fervency in prayer. I believe that it, it, it rejoices the heart of God when his people are fervent in their prayers. That's what James chapter 5 verse 16 states very clearly. It is the fervent, it is the effectual prayer of a righteous man that avails much. Much with who? Much with God. He rejoices over that. When his people are praying, what they're doing is exercising that uh, spiritual discipline that, that states that, Lord, here I am and I'm dependent on you. I know I can't get it done by myself. I'm going to depend on you. I know that I can't uh, 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 surmount to the issue without your grace and without your mercy. What you're doing is you are declaring dependency upon God. I don't believe, I'm not among those that believe that prayer changes God. I believe that prayer changes you. Prayer helps me mold my will and fashion it after His rather than the other way around. If you will turn with me quickly over to Proverbs again in chapter 15. These are nuggets. I'm, I'm just giving, I'm just dispensing nuggets this morning. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 15, listen to what he says in verse 8. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his what? His delight. The prayer, the prayer of the upright is his delight. 
it, it, it's it's kind of like uh, uh, I, I have two older aunts, and periodically I'll give them a call. And they're, they're in their late 80s. They're getting on up there. And uh, I never have a conversation with them that they don't express to me their appreciation for just calling. And Martha will say, it's just good to hear your voice. It's just good to hear from you and that you care enough about me to just, just give me a call every once in a while. Well, just think about that in the context of God who give you, gave uh, unto us everything, life and liberty and everything that we know. God is the one that gave it to us, right? Well, He likes to hear from you and more than ever once in a while. I'm here to tell you I think it's a grand mistake for anybody to even get out, set one foot out of bed in the morning without saying, thank you, Lord. You've given me one more day. Or, Jesus, are you coming today? That ought to be the first thing to our minds. But how many of us, and I'm just being honest, here's some conviction that comes along with this message. How, how many of us become so preoccupied with the things of this world and so preoccupied with the worries, the, 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 the troubles, Instead of, instead of waking up uh, thanking God and praising God for another day, we're getting up and saying, oh, no, here it is, another day. How am I going to get through it? What about my loved one? Are they going to make it? What about uh, neighbor so-and-so? Is it going to be well with them? In, in other words, focusing upon the issues or the troubles of this life rather than uh, uh, focusing upon the goodness and the mercy of God. Each and every day, I think all of us are guilty of that. And we need to repent. Because I'm here to tell you this morning that if you want to rejoice the heart of God, you need to be fervent in your prayer life. And I want to encourage all of us toward that end. The sixth thing that I notice about these people that rejoice the heart of God is that they're a forgiving people. <laughs> Can you imagine that? The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Let me hasten to say this morning that none of us will ever be asked to forgive another person anything comparable to that which we have been forgiven by God. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? You see, that's just the truth. But when God's people actually exercise the ability to forgive one another, why do you think the Apostle Paul in uh, most of his letters would emphasize and overemphasize forgiving one another? You know, you, you go with me to Ephesians, you go with me to Colossians, you go with me to the book of Philippians and First uh, and Second Thessalonians, and Paul is there saying, forgive. Forgive one another. Why are you repeating that so much, Paul? It's kind of like that preacher. Uh, you know, six Sundays in a row, he preached on repent, repent, repent. And finally, his deacon come to him and said, Brother, why in the world are you preaching the same sermon every time? Why are you preaching on repentance every time? I'm, he said, I'm going to until I see you repent. Well... This morning, we need a little dose of that. We need to forgive. We need to forgive those that have trespassed against us because Jesus said, if you don't do that, you won't be forgiven. How about that? Now, that's pretty, that's pretty straight, isn't it? Some of us are like old Peter. Peter thought he was being so pious coming to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 and saying, well, Lord, I know. I tell you what, I'll forgive John over here seven times. Seven's, you know, a number of completion. But after that, I'm going to deck him. After that, I'm going to get even with him. Jesus says, Peter, you got the wrong idea. I'm not asking you to forgive John seven times. I'm asking you to forgive him seven times 70. And then Luke added, 
in a day. Now, how about that? You got somebody in your life rubbing you raw? Will they do it 490 times in a day? Now, if, you, if they do it 491 times, we'll talk about it. But, brothers and sisters, this is the way Jesus was communicating the commandments of his kingdom. This is what the kingdom of Christ should look like. This is what the land of Beulah looks like. This is what Hephzibah looks like. The land that brings joy and delight to the heart of God is when we from the heart are able to forgive one another, even as we have been forgiven of so much more. Seventh point and last. Fellowship. Some people say, well, Brother Jeff, I'll tell you what, I, I kind of like, I, I like the church thing. And, and I'm going to show up. I'm, 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 I'm going I'm to be a, a, like a buzzard Baptist. I'm going to show up when somebody dies. <coughs> or I'm going to be a holiday Baptist. I'm going to show up on Easter and Christmas, maybe, if I'm not too busy. But I sure do love the church. Oh, that's a sad person because they're deceived. They're deceived. How, how would your wife feel if you said, well, honey, I love you more than anything in the world. I'll see you next year. Or, 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 sweetheart, I, I, I love you. You know I, I'll do anything in the world for you. And I'll call you at least uh, once a year to see how you're doing. Brothers and sisters, that's not love. Love is something in the heart that longs to fellowship with the people that are loved. There's a longing there. There's a, there's a need there. And, and it's holy. It's good. It's godly. It, 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 it rejoices God's heart to see His people fellowship one another. Now, I, I'm telling you, I believe the preeminent in the ministry of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the preaching of the Word. I believe it's central. I learned a good lesson uh, not too many years ago uh, Brother Herb and I uh, had the privilege of going in uh, to Bulgaria and holding some Bible conferences, and we met a lot of wonderful people there. But one of the things they, they did, they took us to some of these historic uh, uh, church buildings. And uh, I, I'm talking about church buildings that are 1,000 years old. And one of the things we noticed when we'd go into these places, the pulpit was always on the side. Every one of these huge halls, you know, you're looking for the pulpit, and where's the Well, it's over here. It's either toward the back or toward the middle of that uh, uh, hall, but it's always on the side. It was after the Reformation. It was after the Reformation that the pulpit, the pulpit was lifted up, and put in the center. It's not an accident that the pulpit's in the center of this building because central to the church is God's Word and the proclamation of it. And I'm telling you, that's the, the number one mission that we have as the church of Jesus Christ is to publish the Word of God. But brothers and sisters, that's not all church is. Church is also a house of prayer. It's also a place we bring our sacrifices. We bring our gifts. Somebody says, oh, it's not so important if we support the church. You know, it's not important if I give uh, 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 money to the church. You're missing it. You're missing it. It's not that the church needs your money. It's not that God needs your money. But you need to give it to show your love and gratitude for God. And that's another subject. But I'm telling you, that's a part of what the church is about. It's a place we can come and bring our gifts and bring our uh, devotion and bring our praises and our worship. But it's also a place where we can fellowship. The word in the Greek tongue is koinonia. I want you to turn very quickly with me 
in closing, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to bring my march to a close here. But in Acts chapter 2, I want you to see something with me. Here is the characteristic of the apostolic church. This is the first century church. In Acts chapter 2, after the anointing on Pentecost, after the great uh, ingathering of 3,000 people that were baptized, submerged as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, <laughs> bound together in the faith once delivered to the saints. Listen to this. This is so wonderful to me. <laughs> In verse 42, and they continued steadfastly. That means they weren't uh, wishy-washy. They weren't once in a while. They weren't buzzard Baptists. They, uh, they weren't holiday folks. This is something that they sincerely devoted themselves to. They were steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. Somebody says, well, doctrine divides. Doctrine's not that important. Well, it was to them. It was to the apostles, it was to the first century church, and it better be to us. Because part of the identity of the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is Bible doctrine. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and what? What does your Bible say? And fellowship. Number two on the list is fellowship. Koinonia. The common binding together in a covenant way of fellow believers. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna confess something to you this uh, this morning. I love all Christians. I love all if if they love Jesus Christ, I love them in Christ, and and I and I praise God for them. I'll do everything I can to help in their cause and work. But brothers and sisters, when I come to this place, I've got a higher love, a deeper love. Because we're bound together, not only because of our confession of Christ, which is important, but our confession of the apostles' doctrine that we love so well. It's a special place in this earth. It's, it's like an oasis I can, I can just come and, and sit and rest here when I can't anywhere else. I can enjoy my Christian brothers and sisters. I can laugh with them and love with them and work with them. But here I come to rest. In just a little while, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters, I, I value that. I, I esteem it. I'm glad we wash feet. I know that's archaic. I, I know it's old-fashioned. I know a lot of people kind of laugh at it. You know, all oh, those are those feet washing. But that's okay. But when I'm washing my brother's feet, I'm thinking about Christ. Um, can you imagine Peter when Jesus took that towel? It's, it's more than I can even imagine. Um, to, to see the perfect redeemer never did anything wrong never hurt anybody never made a mistake get down at Peter's feet and to say to Peter Peter now I know son you don't understand what I'm doing right now but you will. One day you'll understand. Because you see, Peter, these precious feet are carrying the truth of the gospel to the waiting world. You're carrying it to school. You're carrying it to work. 
You're carrying it to the hospital. You're, you're, you're carrying it home. You're carrying it to your neighbors. You're carrying it to the cafe, Brother Don. You're carrying it there. And, 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 and really, it's not so much what you say, it's what you do. A kind word. How you doing, Dewey? Oh, that means a lot. Just a, a handshake. What's going on in your life today? Well, you know, so-and-so. Listen, just a, just a hear and ear. Peter, there's a lot you don't understand right now, but you're going to. And then he turns to those other disciples, and Brother Don, I see him sitting over there with her jaw wide open. What are you doing? You're the Lord. You're the master. You're the perfect sal salvation. You're everything. How can you go down and wash a sinner's feet? And he stands up and he says, Brothers and sisters, you call me Lord and Master. And he is. And you say, Well, that means you, you're telling the truth. You're, you're saying it right. But if I, your Lord and Master, have knelt down to wash your feet, you ought to be willing to wash one another's feet. And brothers and sisters, that's fellowship. You see, our fellowship's in Christ. We're just, we're just trying to show the same love of Christ toward one another as he has shown to us. But you say, oh, but Brother Jeff, you know, that brother over there, he's ornery. Or that sister, she's, she's, she's ornery. Well, you see, the communion table is a place where you can lay all of that down. In fact, I think you ought to before you participate. If, you, if you're holding ought, if, you, if you're holding a grudge, if you're holding something that maybe against your brother or against your sister, oh, before you sit at the Lord's table, lay that down. You give it to the Lord right now. You, you, you just say, Lord, I know that brother, that sister that said, did, whatever. I, you give that up before you sit at this table. Because this is the table where the Savior said to you and me, where the Father said to you and me, you're valuable to me. So valuable that I'm going to give my son in your stead. Never minimize communion. Never minimize fellowship. Never, brothers and sisters, please, never minimize the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. It's a precious thing. And I believe it rejoices the heart of God. Thank you for your good and kind attention.